You're listening to Program 8 of the Norvision Podcast, recorded to leave an oral history legacy of the journey of the Norvision Project. KCLR. The age of a river is estimated by the age of any mountain it dissects, and the oldest river in the world is thought to be 300 to 340 million years old. For early human settlers, the rivers provided fresh drinking water as well as food, and because Ireland was heavily wooded at the time, the rivers were the main means of transport. From the very beginning, we have abstracted from the river, discharged into the river and modified the river. The monks in the 1100s were particularly adept at this. In 1182, the Cistercian monks built Kilcooley Abbey, close to the village of Gertnahu in the Schlieve Arda region of County Tipperary. And according to local historian Liam Noonan, the monks there manipulated the waterways to make a fish farm on their lands. In Kilcooley you'll notice the absence of a major river passing close to the monastery. But what they did in it is reckoned is they shifted a whole lot of small streams in together. And uh, there's an underground stream comes down, a purpose-built stream comes down past the abbey, just to the south of it. And that would have fed the fish farm. It also would have fed a mill. It would have been unique to this country in the sense that it looks like it was a fish farm where they kept carp. Or, you know, what we call fish that live in brackish water, like goldfish would live in brackish water and carp. There was like a wide area and two, two lesser areas. And we think what they would have done, I, I don't know now, I mean, I wouldn't be an expert on it by any means, was they would have reared the smaller fish in the smaller trenches and moved them to the big trench. And when they wanted to catch fish, now that would have contained a huge amount of water. They could release the water from the trench into this other trench, down, follow the stream down into the wood, and they would have milled down there as they were releasing the water. But they also, when they lowered the water down, all the fish would have been in a very shallow pool. God. So they could walk in, yeah. catch the ones they wanted, chuck them out and refill it again. The area around Kukuli is a network of small streams and rivers. You see the, the valley over here? Yes. That's the last stream that flows into the River Nore. There's another stream comes down from this valley and even in front of the hills there. So they all end up in the River Gowl in Orlingford, eventually. And right over from, all the way over to the crag. Meanwhile, a hump on the road close to the abbey is a marker that divides streams either so into the Nore or the Shore. This is, you're moving from Norland to Shoreland, if you like, in terms of the catchment. That's good. Now, everything that flows this way now is going back to the River Shore. All on the whim of a particular rock or slope in the land. Different rocks can be found in different areas along the length of the Nore, and these rocks shape its course. So, for example, where the, the Nore rises, that's um, underlain by what we call old red sandstone. So that's very hard sandstone. And as the river flows southwards, then it goes over softer um, shales and limestones. Now, the limestones are kind of quite hard still, but because um, they're made of limestone, then they can be dissolved away um, a bit by the rain. And so that those that's why we find the limestones in the valleys and the the um, the sandstones, the harder sandstones in the, the cores of the hills and the mountains. Tally Williams, hydrologist with the Geological Survey of Ireland there. Over the years, the extraction of this rock from areas along the Nor catchment has been valuable economically, especially in the Ballangari and Castlecomer area where anthracite coal was mined. 
what made the coal mine so valuable and so the price was very always high, top quality, was that it was very, very, very pure anthracite. And the common coal that was exported to Britain, most of it was for, for the making of stainless steel. And you had no pollution in the rivers from either Rasmore or any of those, because it was anthracite. When digging the pits, the miners had to be so careful with water, which they would be sure to meet during their excavation. Groundwater is interesting because rivers either begin from little rivulets of water joining up over the ground that isn't permeable or else they form from groundwater springs. The rainwater will actually soak down through the soil there, past the roots, um, what the roots don't take up of the plants and then that reaches down to the groundwater and in those cases then there might be a little seep or a, a larger spring that emerges at the ground surface and that might also be the head of a river. And in the summertime, most of the water that's in the river is actually groundwater. You wouldn't put two and two together necessarily and think, oh, it hasn't rained for a while. Where's all that water coming from? So the the rock or the sand and gravel that's holding the groundwater is called an aquifer. Um, That's almost like a sponge. It's a storage system for the water that then gradually seeps in to the river. So so in, in a flood, the, most of the water flowing in that river is very, very recent rainfall. Mm. And, you know, maybe kind of 70%, 80% even. And then um, at other times of year, then literally all of the water, or almost all of the water flowing in the, the river is, is seeping up from underground. And actually that groundwater is a, is a very constant temperature. It doesn't really change very much over the year. Um, it might change by a degree or two. So that water helps keep the rivers at a cooler temperature as well. It's providing the water for the, to, to maintain the river flow and the river health, but also the temperature is being, is being regulated to a certain extent by the, the groundwater temperature. If you're a miner or a quarryman, you don't like the water. That's what you don't want to see. It wasn't a very deep mine, but it was like a pot. It was, uh a good few miles diameter all round. But there was a lot of water down there too. There was a lake very deep down. And when that used to fill from all the land around that was all drained into it, then it would flood the mines. And they used to pump out between 20 and 30 million litres every 24 hours. It was called long hole mining. They would make a main road and then they would put roads to each side of it. And they'd blow them out. They'd be, they had drilling machines that could drill maybe four, maybe six holes at a time. They'd drill in 40, 50 feet. And then they'd blow it, block it all off. Everyone had to get out. The, the alarms would go and they would, they would blow it out and then they would scoop it out. It was called mucking out. The trucks would bring it to the area where it was crushed. They'd just into the crusher they would pulverise it up into small pieces and up it come. Up to us, I was working in the mill. The mill would turn it into paste and had went through the process. And the lid was, the lid was separated. And they used millions of gallons of water to pump it around and clean it and separate the chemicals to separate the, the lid from the zinc. And, but they had clean water, when they'd, when they'd go into a new area, they'd have clean water. That was pumped to settling, settling ponds and 
it was pumped directly into the rivers. It was highly, highly looked after. And the dirty water went to a, a tailing pond. They had uh, 150 acres of tailing pond, which was a huge pond lined with rubber. And that's where all the dirty water went. The dirty water went out there and when they wanted to use any water for washing down or screening in the mill, they pump it all back in again and use it. And then when it was really bad, they'd send it out again and it'd settle there. And then they would cover it, eventually, cover it with rock. And it was highly supervised. And uh, they'd put grass back on it and they had cattle on it at one stage. Memories of the Lachine mines there are recorded by Patrick Lydon for the Norvision project. Such diligence in relation to cleanliness around water and the river is a relatively new thing. A long time ago, you had the, the, the king or his agents would issue a, an edict or grant some sort of rights or licenses to people and then they would have the rights to fish or the rights to abstract water. Um, and then basically they could do what they like. You, know, you didn't have to go for planning permissions or permits or anything like that. There was no environmental agency. Um, rivers were seen mainly as a, a sewer or as a dump. If you had a population centre or a, a large building or a religious institution, you needed some place to just dump your sewerage and waste. So that was our waste treatment process up to quite recently. Not so long ago, all the sores in Kilkenny City just dumped into the river and that was it. Thankfully, now we have good water treatment and um, we don't just dump our waste into the rivers anymore. This is Rick McGrath, who has a great interest in mills and the River Noor. Rick is an engineer and he spent his early career working on ESB power stations. These were all strategically situated on river estuaries, which used the cooling water from the rivers to cool the, the steam from the turbines. And that meant that we had to take in water from the middle of the estuaries, pump it around and deliver it back again. So quite complicated in terms of the environmental permitting process. Unlike the traditional abstractions from rivers, which was done on a more ad hoc basis. So then I decided to apply some of that technology then into turbines and trying to update some of the mills. One of the turbines he adapted was for Brett Sawmills in Kilkenny, which has a long history. From what we can see, there was a, a mill here back in Asarbe Don in 1650. But uh, my great-grandfather took over the operation of this mill here in 1886. At the time, it was a corn mill and he converted it to... Uh, sawmill, using the two existing water wheels as a source of power for the for the mill. John Brett and his son Owen currently operate the sawmill, which uses the nor to generate electricity. You think you're just hooked up to the grid uh, as normal, but in reality, it's really you're hooking up to the river. <laughs> we we take what we need, and then the surplus then is uh, put onto the grid then for other users to to use. The breaths, as users of the river, must adhere to lots of rules and regulations. You know, every river is a, either an SAC, Special Area of Conservation, or it's an SPA, Special Protection Area, or it's both. And there's European directives that um, heavily guard these areas. 
And every new and existing hydro site in Ireland has to be compliant with fishery regulations. And we get visits uh, from the fisheries every year. And, you know, we've always been compliant, but there's a standard there for hydro sites. And as far as we're concerned, they are safe environmentally because, you know, the standards are rigorous. There has to be fish guards on the on the turbines downstream and upstream uh, and it just makes it very safe for the fish and you know the fish will go uh, down and up the weir instead of uh, going anywhere else. The fish have secured their right of passage at Bretzel Mills in a river that many people and agencies now have rights and interests in. Nowadays I suppose you can't be just a big guy and just decide you're going to build something. People have a right, so you have to go through the Environmental Protection Agency. You have to go through the Office of Public Works, who have an interest in um, the, the rivers. You have inland waterways, Antashka, archaeological conservation issues, wildlife and conservation. All these people are stakeholders. And then you add in amenity, you know, now new amenity like walkers who are suddenly deciding to take a new interest in the riverbanks, you know. And there's quite a few stakeholders now, you know. Um, you have the landowners then themselves, and the rights of the rivers are riparian. So the ownership of the river is owned halfway across across the river. So the landowner on each side owns the soil and under the river. And they own things like generally fishing rights and rights of access and rights of uh, rights of use of the river and the river banks and to land on those you know banks and shores so a lot of rights that um, people assume but they may not actually have yeah. and getting that right balance with so many stakeholders is a role that Norvision hopes to navigate and speaking of navigation, the Nor was our modern-day motorway, and in the late 1700s, there were several attempts to construct a canal along it. It was recognised that Kilkenny needed to export to Dublin. We had a lot of marble, and they had some brewing, they had corn and butter. These were the ones that they said that they really need to get to Dublin, to the export markets. And they needed to get down to Venice Bridge, Thomas down in Esteeg, then they could hit the tidal waters, get down to New Ross and on to Bellevue. From Waterford then they, could, they would have access to international markets and back up to Dublin. So it was decided and funded to build this canal. They got over an eminent Dutch engineer to do it. He came over and they started construction and they made the locks out of marble. So very, very exotic, Black Kilkenny marble locks. And they constructed approximately seven locks to get the ships up. They made pretty much this section between Kilkenny and Venice Bridge navigable, but they still had some work to do between uh, Venice Bridge and Thomastown, which required another funding. Apparently the Dutch engineer died and was left with his his co-engineer, who was a little bit out of his depth and uh, progress slowed down a little bit. They did eventually get a second funding and they started works again. Once the money was drawn down, it was a series of events. Two years later, there was a massive flood and it took out the all the bridges in the north, except for Ballyragget and Mount Juliet. So, so the focus kind of turned away from that canal building and it went back to just uh, trying to rebuild some sort of bridges to get across the rivers, which became first priority. So for one reason or another, the canal kind of just faded away and the money faded away. 
and it was just taken that the the thing was substantially completed. The key in Thomastown used to be fully navigable. I believe it was something like 100,000 tonnes of stone and marble a year sent out of Thomastown at one stage. But then afterwards, those um, works fell into disrepair. Lots of weirs and salmon weirs and steak weirs were, were erected along the river, which caused barriers. So you could say things went backwards. The navigation to Thomastown was lost and the navigation from Kilkenny to Bennis Bridge was relatively complete, but that little bit between Bennis Bridge and Thomastown was the missing link and that never really got finished. It's hard to imagine now the extent of that level of industrial activity centred around the Noor in those years, with mills busy processing a huge range of products. To say that there was 22 mills on the River Noor at, at, at one stage, fast-flowing river, you see it power was able to be harnessed from the river just down the Lacken there you had a mill, the Ormond mill at the other side that going back to um, the 1500s then down here in Warrington you had a distillery and there, there's supposed to be a massive, massive uh, mill wheel down there at this side of the river Culls, the marble works and they were famous in Britain for their work, then you had the Ormond mill, there was a couple of hundred people working there, it was famous for um, making blankets. This is Paddy Nari, an historian who also worked at the Smithwick's Brewery for many years. They had a mill there too. In the brewery, yeah, they would have had a, a mill for uh, grinding the, the malt to prepare it for the, the mash, for the brewing part of it. There was a, a mill stream constructed from the brega, which was fast flowing, and there was um, a cutting made in, in the, the brega, and the, it was, the water then was diverted into the brewery. She had a great flow of water and the mill wheel then was operated from that. And it was amazing to see it working, this big wheel and uh, it, the, the amount of machinery that depended on it to turn the, the grinding process, the, the millstones. It, it was used for, for uh, pumping as well, especially during the war years when electricity was scarce and before the, the brewery bought um, boilers and, and produced their own energy. Up until the 1900s, the brewery used water from St. Francis as well to make the beer. Then, when the public water supply was installed, they used that. Effluent from the process was treated before discharged. 1980s, the 1980s when um, the local authorities built the treatment plant out here in Purcell's Inch and the brewery was connected into it, so all the waste was uh, transferred, pumped out to uh, Purcell's Inch but then the brewery purchased the, their own uh, plant and uh, the waste was um, treated before it was released into the discharge system and pumped on then but it was in, in good order going down to Purcell's Inch then there was so much brewing down in Smiddix and th- th- there would be a, a backup of um, effluent to be discharged but uh, they found a way around that too that um, the farmers were anxious for it and spread it on the land and use it as a, a fertiliser and it seems to be very, very good for as a nutrient for the willow. 
The brewery is gone, mining is gone, the mills are gone, and as mentioned earlier, abstraction and discharges into the river are now closely monitored by either the local authorities or the EPA. Lisa Maher works in the licence enforcement section of the EPA and is responsible for making sure three large industries currently operating along the Nore do not pollute its waters. I had a a look in advance so today just to, to see what types of industries and activities are discharging into the NOR. Um, and I found there's three types that are, are occurring. So a food production site, I, I'd say most people would be aware of that in, in Ballyragget. And production of food will mean that there will be a number of effluent waste streams that the company need to dispose of. Um, and they will look for permission from the EPA to discharge that effluent into the river. Now, to allow that discharge out to the river, the EPA has to be satisfied that that will not cause pollution in the river nor. So the steps that are taken, we ask the company to characterise or test their effluent. So they need to tell us what are the, the constituents of that, what exactly is in the effluent. Then what we do is we get the licensee to also do monitoring in the river and that will establish what the background levels of particular parameters and pollutants already are in the river. And then we look at what are the standards set out in legislation that must be satisfied. And using those three pieces of criteria, we'll be able to determine at what level, what limit we will allow the discharge out into the river to ensure that pollution doesn't happen. What what happens is when that licensing step is completed, where those three pieces of data are used to, to specify the right limit, we then require the licensee to put in controls to make sure fail safes as such to make sure that the discharge is at the levels it should be before it leaves the, the, the factory and goes out into the river. So one of the best ways to do that is there's often online probes. Now, they're for specific parameters. So they're what we would refer to them as indicator parameters. So they will suggest to you they're a good catch-all of pollution. So those probes actually sit in contact with the discharge as it's flowing out of the pipe into the river. And those readings are, are they're normally instantaneous. They're, they're read every couple of seconds and they're input into a computer system. And the licensee will typically set a limit that's below their actual specified limit in their license. So it gives them a bit of time to react if something is nearing the limit. So they set it slightly below. And basically what will happen is that computer system will alarm and typically licensees have it set up to alert on their mobile phones. So if they're on the site or they're at home, say they're not doing 24 hours operation, they will get notified that something is going awry and they can make their way to the treatment plant on site and take whatever actions they need to to ensure that if something is non-compliant with the limit that it doesn't actually get released. And they often will have large tanks on site which ex- with extra capacity to store that they can divert the effluent over into just as a, ho- a holding situation until they can rectify the problem with the plant itself. You said that there was three industries. Um, what are the other two? Yeah, the other two are interesting. There is a quarry. So the discharge there consists of when they're quarrying deep into the, the 
the void, rainwater will just fall and accumulate. And they, they use pumps to pump out that rainwater to allow them to continue to quarry in the base of the quarry. Um, so what they do, that water that gets pumped out is often quite silty. So it's different to, a, say, an effluent from a food manufacturing process. This is more natural. It's literally just rainwater in contact with the natural gravels and stones. But it, it does have the tendency to have sediments and sands in it. Um, and they can be problematic for aquatic life. So the requirements to treat that type of effluent prior to discharge is very different to the food processing one. Um, this one would simply be they'd have a series of ponds and the, the water is discharged into the ponds. It's allowed to sit for a certain amount of time to allow just very simply the, the sediments and sands to fall to the bottom. And then the clear liquid at the top is pumped forward and it just moves through a number of these channels to allow this settlement and then that clear water is allowed to discharge out into the River Nore. And then the other industry um, is a piggery um, and it's slightly different again um, in that the only permitted discharge from the piggery to the River Nore would be what we would call storm water, so clean rainwater that falls on the roofs of the pig houses. It's just collected in the, the eaves and the downpipes and it is diverted off into the River Nore. Um, and because there is potential because there's an, an industrial activity happening, there is also a requirement to monitor that discharge. So there's no requirement to treat it, but they certainly need to monitor it at a frequency specified in their licence. It's it's typically um, monthly um, or weekly to show that there is nothing um, other than clean uh, rainwater going out into the river. It's all regulated, exact and clear as regards industrial rules for operating along the river. Yet still, the river water is dirty. We have made some remarkable progress in terms of our human industrial waste effluent processing. But from the agricultural side, we still have a long way to go. The construction of the waste treatment plant in Purcell's Inch was probably the first real stop to just dumping stuff into the river. And then the major industries then gradually were forced to put their effluent in. So places like the brewery then had to connect their secondary effluent and it used to have to go and be treated in Purcell's Inch at that stage. Um, Upstream then you had um, Avonmore at the time and they had to put in a waste treatment plant for their waste then as well. So now the the main problem with the river is more got to do with nutrient runoff from fertiliser and land spreading of animal waste. Then you get some rain and it, it spills off into the rivers. Could the regulations that industry must keep to not be extended to agriculture? No, says Linda Maher, it's too diffuse. I suppose, um, Monica, the difference is that point sources, so at the end of a pipe, it's such an easy thing to control. We call it a point source of discharge to a river. So it's very easy to study that, understand it and put controls in place. But with the agriculture, it's a diffuse source. So it's basically, it's just coming from runoff from the acres and acres of agricultural land that we have. So it's exceptionally hard to pinpoint and control because there's not one one pipe as such that's bringing it out. So the best way to control that is, is legislatively. But it is definitely acknowledged that trying to control pollution from diffuse sources, it, it is much more difficult just due to the size of the area that the stuff can be coming from. And made more difficult, not just by water running off the land, but also made more complicated by the intricacies of groundwater. 
It's the soil and rock in an area that can influence the cleanliness of the groundwater. Where the soil and boulder clay, for example, is very thin or absent, if there is a source of pollution on, on the ground surface, then that can seep down and reach the water table. So you can get pollution mm. into the groundwater. It's not, it's not fully protected. And that's why it's important to have these studies, for example, the ones that we do around wells and springs, to make sure that we're understanding as best as we can the areas which might be more susceptible to letting pollution into the into the groundwater system than other areas. And that means that people can then adapt their land activities. Such technical advances wouldn't have been made possible without the Industrial Revolution, which wouldn't have been possible without the river. And since industry isn't leaving as much of a mark on the river as before, then what's the river's new era? Is the river more suitable for amenity at the moment? The answer is yes, of course. But first of all, we don't dump sewage in anymore, so it doesn't smell so bad. That's a good starting point. The water is clean. Uh, people have more time for recreation, you know. So probably the future holds that the rivers should be used to their best advantage by, for amenity, for water sports, angling, canoeing, fishing, all the other bits and pieces. Um, and yeah, all the, the various stakeholders are there and there's quite a complexity of stakeholders. So in order to get things done, all these stakeholders really have to come together yeah, and uh, come up with a master plan and try and get agreement. Otherwise, the whole thing just gets too complicated. And that's where Norvision and the Norvision Trust hope to play a role. Check out norvision.ie for more information on this project. The Norvision Radio Series is funded by Kilkenny Leader Partnership CLG through the Department of Rural and Community Development and the EU.